Hello and welcome to Net Zero by Current, where we bring you some of the latest Net Zero stories from the UK and Ireland. My name is Lena and I'm very glad to be joined today by my colleague over from Current's sister site, PV Tech, Will. Hi Lena. Our first news snapshot for this episode covers the Energy Act 2023. So the 26th of October saw the Energy Act, which has been called the biggest piece of energy legislation in UK history, receive royal assent. Now law, the Act includes major changes to the UK energy system to facilitate net zero. Many of these changes are aimed at making the UK energy system more equipped to manage the growing number of electric technologies being added as the UK tries to reach net zero. One welcome change in the new legislation is the expansion of Ofgem's powers as their remit expands to include net zero targets as part of everyday decisions. In our second snapshot, we look at the state opening of Parliament on Tuesday the 7th of November, which saw the King's speech confirm government support for new oil and gas licences. According to the King's speech, this bill aims to help the country transition to net zero by 2050 without adding undue burdens on UK households. The speech followed the government's earlier release, which, re- which revealed that annual oil and gas licensing in the North Sea will be mandated. And the announcement was met with some hostility from members of the UK's energy industry, with some believing it to be another setback amidst growing international competition for renewables investment. Our third story comes from Energy UK, which released a report on the 30th of October warning that weak and volatile carbon prices within the UK's Emissions Trading Scheme, or ETS, could have a detrimental effect on renewables should planned EU carbon tax legislations be implemented in January 2024. If imposed, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, will cover imported goods that have paid a lower price than the EU ETS, as well as imports of electricity from countries outside the EU. To avoid the significant costs when importing goods and electricity to the EU, Energy UK has urged the UK and EU's ETSs to be linked, allowing for a carbon price convergence which will exempt the UK from the EU CBAM. Moving on to some exciting news from the UK solar market, as plans are unveiled for the UK's first gigawatt-scale nationally significant infrastructure project, or NSIP. Early plans of the one gigawatt Great North Road solar park project were unveiled by UK-based renewables developer Elements Green earlier this year. Located northwest of Newark-on-Trent, the solar park would be located on approximately 6,920 acres of land and connected to the existing national grid substation at Staythorpe. The size of it means that it will join Botley West and Cleve Hill in attaining an NSIP categorisation. So that was our new snapshot for today, and I'm looking forward to hearing your international perspective, Will, on today's coverage. But before that, shall we jump to our first story, which focuses on the newly passed Energy Act? Yeah. So, Lena, you mentioned that there are a number of changes within the Act. Yes. So one of the key changes or the key focuses of the Act is increasing competition in Britain's onshore electricity networks. And the bill aims to achieve this through a newly introduced tender process, which, according to the government, will reduce costs for network operation and development. And this is as well as saving consumers up to £1 billion of their energy bills by 2050. The Act also introduces a new merger regime for energy networks, which will be established under the Competition and Markets Authority, so that the negative impact on customers caused by mergers can be minimised. And that's expected to save consumers a lot of money, right? Yes, the government said that the regime is estimated to save households up to £420 million over the next decade. Sounds like great news. 
And another significant aspect of the act you mentioned earlier are the new powers and responsibilities that have been granted to Ofgem. That's right. Ofgem's updated responsibilities mean that the energy regulator will now consider net zero targets as part of everyday decisions. Ofgem will also be integral in establishing a future system operator, or FSO, which will be a public body built on the capabilities of National Grid ESO and, where appropriate, National Grid Gas. It will balance the UK's electrical systems, working with energy suppliers and networks to ensure energy resilience and security in the UK, making sure consumers can access a secure and decarbonised energy supply. Ofgem has also been appointed the new regulator for heat networks in Britain, which means that they can now set rules on excessive pricing, as well as improving the quality of service for heat network customers as a whole. And from what I've seen, the new Energy Act was warmly received on the whole by the UK's energy sector. Absolutely. Overall, the Energy Act was positively received by key members of the UK's energy sector. To give an example, Jonathan Brearley, Ofgem CEO, praised the Energy Act, saying it will grant the UK security from volatile world gas markets, as well as being an important step towards ending the UK's dependency on fossil fuels. The Association for Renewable Energy and Clean Technology also expressed their delight that the Energy Act had received royal assent, calling it a landmark legislation which will transform the UK's energy system. But not all reactions to recent legislative proposals made in the past fortnight have been as positive as that. During the state opening of Parliament this week, King Charles spoke of new legislation set to be introduced that aims to strengthen the UK's energy security and reduce reliance on international energy markets. This bill, according to the King's speech, will support new oil and gas fields. This likely refers to an earlier announcement by the UK government, which happened at the beginning of this week, which allowed the North Sea Transition Authority to invite applications for new oil and gas production licences on an annual basis. How often would gas licensing rounds take place beforehand? Well, historically, there was no fixed period between licensing rounds. So the difference here is, is that this is the first time there is a set time for licensing rounds to take place. Oh, I see. And this didn't go down too well with some members of the energy industry. No, it was met with some backlash with, from members within the energy industry. For example, Sam Richards from the pro-growth campaign group Britain Remade called the North Sea gas licence legislation, quote, little more than political posturing that is unlikely to increase domestic oil and gas production, end quote. Dr Ashok Sinha, CEO of the climate solutions charity Ashton, added that the legislation would do nothing to lower energy bills or increase energy security as it was said to do, and also pointed out the unfortunate timing of the announcement, which is just three weeks ahead of COP28. Now, one of the reasons for this strong opposition was highlighted by Roy Bedlow, chief executive of renewable energy generator Low Carbon. Roy pointed out that the UK needs a stable regulatory and policy environment which gives certainty to businesses, something which suddenly introducing North Sea gas licences doesn't really give in a net zero trajectory. This is especially significant in the context of increasing international investment competition. And speaking of international investment competition, Will, from your PV tech seat, can you give us an overview of what this is? Yeah, for sure. Um, that's kind of what we do on PV Tech. Um, and the big one is the Inflation Reduction Act, um, or the IRA, as the Americans would say in the US, um, which has been called the biggest single climate investment package ever. It includes both production and investment tax credits of up to 30%, which add up to the tune of 369 billion US dollars. And other bonuses on top of that for developing in certain communities or using domestic products, all of which incentivizes bringing renewable energy deployment and manufacturing onto US shores. 
Uh, closer to home, uh, over the summer, 12 EU countries revised their national energy and climate plans, which are binding targets for contributing to the EU's overall climate and renewable energy goals. This resulted in the EU adding a further 90 gigawatts of solar PV alone to its 2030 targets. Discussions are also ongoing around EU interventions to safeguard its renewables manufacturing industry, most notably for solar, and create an attractive environment for investment with the Green Deal industrial plan. Ultimately, with both of these examples, what they fundamentally do is create certainty into the future for renewables developers, manufacturers and investors. Great. Thanks, Will. And just before we move on to the next story, I just wanted to know other references to clean energy within the King's speech which included a promise that ministers will seek to attract record levels of investment in renewable energy sources, as well as reform grid connections. This came alongside a pledge to support developing countries in the transition to net zero. So moving on, during the news snapshot, you mentioned that the UK's ETS prices are weak and volatile. Do we know why that is? So to find this out, I spoke to Adam Beeman, who's the Deputy Director at Energy UK, and he said that there are fundamentally two reasons that the UK ETS has fallen so significantly beneath its EU counterparts. The first of these is that the government has decided to introduce quite a few new allowances to the market between 2024 and 2027. The reason that they've done this is to smooth the curve for industries for which decarbonisation will be expensive. Okay, so basically these new allowances have led the market not to expect high prices for some time into the future. That's right. The second reason given by Beeman for the low UK ETS price is sentiment. Now, sentiment here means sentiment driven by the government, media or ministers, which does drive price change. So Beeman noted that particularly over the last month, there is a sense that the UK government is no longer as committed to the net zero trajectory and to some of the hard decisions and more difficult policies that might be attached to that as they were previously. And if it's less likely that the government is going to pursue an increasing carbon price, it wouldn't be in the interest of market participants to make a bet on higher prices as they would naturally assume that there might be lower prices for a longer period of time. So both the changes in the mechanisms of the ETS and changes in the UK net zero politics are what's led to the decline in the ETS price. Yes, that's right. And if these disparities between the UK and EU ETS prices continue under the proposed Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, in 2024, UK companies will have to pay a tax on imported goods based on the difference between the two ETS, which Energy UK warned could mean the UK would need to pay over £500 million a year. The CBAM will also cover imports of electricity from countries outside the EU, which includes the UK. Now, how the EU is going to determine how carbon intensive a country's electricity is, is by adopting a benchmarking approach, which is based on the average carbon intensity of the exporting country's grid. So, for example, as 40% of the UK's electricity comes from fossil fuels, all electricity exported to the EU will have to pay a 40% carbon tax. This penalises electricity even if it is produced by 100% renewable sources such as wind and solar. To avoid billions of pounds that will likely need to be paid by British businesses due to the EU CBAM, Energy UK has urged for the UK and the EU to merge the ETSs. This would lead to a carbon price convergence between the two jurisdictions and exempt the UK from the EU CBAM, much like Switzerland already does. The government has promised to give serious consideration to linking the two ETSs, but Energy UK has urged for fast action to avoid looming issues as CBAM's implementation date looms ever nearer. And moving on to our final story, the big news is that uh, the planned one gigawatt solar project by Elements Green is 
set to be deemed an NSIP. Although it's in the early stages of planning, the sheer size of the project means that if it's developed, it will be classed as one of these NSIPs. Examples of NSIPs include the Botley West Solar Project, which has a generation capacity of 840 megawatts and launched its first public consultation in November last year, and Cleve Hill, which, once completed, will consist of 373 megawatts of solar and over 150 megawatts of battery energy storage. Now, these are big projects within the UK, but Will, could you give us a run-through of some big solar projects on a global scale and how they compare? Yeah, I mean, one gigawatt, I should say, is big wherever you are in the world. For a single project, that's really big. Um, for example, just this week, uh, Mazdar, which is a UAE state-owned developer, um, signed a deal to build a 1.1 gigawatt project in Saudi Arabia. Um, and Saudi Arabia is a market where big projects are increasingly common, um, and they have there's a plan there to develop a 5 gigawatt project by 2030. Um, also this week, an Indian conglomerate called Avada Group won an auction from the government for a 1.4 gigawatt project, um, which would be the largest ever awarded to a developer in a market that is far larger and more mature than the UK's solar market. So it's clear that a one gigawatt project in the UK really is a big deal. Yes, it would be. Um, and just before we wrap up, I wanted to draw attention to the UK government's ongoing discussion on reforming the NSIP process to enable faster consenting. Discussions began in July around reforming the process undertaken by large-scale renewable projects, allowing them to begin construction and ultimately come online much sooner. Absolutely, that's a great point. The NSIP process has been at the heart of several major solar developments in the UK, such as the aforementioned Cleve Hill and Botley West. Speeding up this process can only accelerate the UK's transition to cleaner energy and ultimately cheaper bills. And that was this week's Net Zero Roundup. All the stories heard today can be read in more detail by following the links to the current website in the episode description. I also just wanted to let our listeners know that this year's Electric Vehicle Innovations and Excellence Awards, or EVs, are taking place on the 21st of November at the Brewery in London. There are a limited number of tickets still available, so if you would like to attend, please do follow the EVs link in the episode description to book your place. Thank you very much, Will, for joining us for this episode. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And thanks for everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.